Hey there, welcome to LSAT Demon Daily. I'm Francesca, and I'm here with our former Demon student, Chris. How you doing, Chris? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. We're happy to have you. We're here for an exciting reason. You're here to share your success story with everybody. Tell us how you crushed this test. So first of all, congratulations on the score. That must feel great. Yeah, it absolutely did. I mean, I, I don't know how much more I can say about that. It was just uh, once you got the goal score, it, it's uh, pretty much everything you want from it, right? Yeah, totally. Makes it worth it. Um, so why don't you start by giving us the like 50 foot view over your LSAT journey, um, diagnostic, final score, how long you're studying for? Um, <clears throat> okay, so I started in October or November of 2020. In October, I had a 152 diagnostic, uh, October 2020. I think I went through two other um, programs and then happened to find the podcast while looking for like LSAT, LSAT podcasts and came across the uh, Thinking LSAT podcast. And, you know, from then, I think within a month, I was using LSAT Demon and um, everything started to just incrementally improve from there because of their focus on just understanding the test and not the gimmicks, which is was so valuable. And they 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 were like, this test is learnable. It's straightforward. It's understandable. And like just going in with a mindset, everything continually improved. Like there was no more downward trends whatsoever. There may have been a few plateaus, but, um, you know, with like regular consistent studying, like it just continued to improve. Yeah, we'll come back to the plateaus because people always want to hear about that. That's a very common experience that happened to me, too. It's funny that you found it through the podcast. That's how I found the demon as well, actually. Um, so glad you got a fellow podcast person here. When you finally took the test, what was your score in the end? Uh, my final score was a 170. Uh, so an 18 point improvement from a diagnostic. And I think every other program's like, we'll give you six points. We'll give you seven guaranteed points. And it's like 18 points is incredible really yeah we see that a lot because again it's about genuine understanding and people can get there it's attainable so congratulations very exciting um so tell us more about the specifics of the studying when were you frustrated what were the plateaus like how, how did you get over them man i think well pre-lsat demon the frustration came from they you know the first program i used just jumped into using phrases like contrapositive without ever having explained what that is. And then, you know, you get to the LSAT demon and they're like, don't worry about stupid words like contrapositive. Like yeah. we're just, just understand what's work, what you're working on. And then, you know, the second program I used, it was reading the question first or reading the, uh, the prompt first and yeah. then going back and reading the, uh, the passage or something like that. And it's like that very classic gimmick of like, know what kind of thing you're looking for. So it's just like, again, it's not about understanding. So um, that was frustrating. That's what led me to, after listening to the podcast and hearing these guys, how they talked about it, when they would do a, an LR question on the podcast or something and and break it down sentence by sentence, even that was just the beginning of really understanding it because you're not trying to get through as quickly as possible. You're just trying to read it for pure comprehension and understand what's being said. So, um, I, and I had a different, a couple different plateaus. Like after I got to LSAT demon, like I started getting into the one sixties and I think I plateaued around one sixty six for a while. 
whichever one that it was that I was struggling with, I spent the least time on like reading comprehension just because I think on the uh, diagnostic, I had minus four in reading comprehension. Mm -hmm. And then I just got really obsessive about like one particular area for a while. I don't know if that's, if that's good advice that I would share. Like, I'm not sure if they recommend just going through the whole thing all the time, like focus on each bit individually. But I know that, Logic games became my favorite thing to do when I started out probably minus 12 or 13. Um, and then logic games became so fun. And uh, I just made it so I got to the point where that was minus zero. And then, um, you know, logical reasoning was like that one you had to... I think for me, uh, the plateau came from uh, trying to get through it as quickly as possible and making that time limit and then... You know, once they started, they talk about um, Nate and um, Ben talk about uh, clicks, right? Like it needs to click for you. And uh, I slowed it down to just reading one sentence. And so I really understood one sentence at a time. And I think from there, like as I got through it, like you start to recognize like the logical fallacies that are the test is testing you on to the point where like if I was having a conversation with someone in real life, and I'd be like, that's correlation, not causation, actually. So I don't know if your argument really holds water right here. So um, it might have been just that being part of it that I was applying whatever it is that I was picking up from the test in real life yeah. as like kind of doing the LSAT all the time um, maybe helped with uh, breaking through those plateaus. It wasn't just something I did here at the computer. It was something like paying attention to how people are thinking and what they're saying and applying the same kind of critical analysis all the time. Absolutely. It's a way of thinking. Um, I actually always joke about that in my classes. When I talk about this, are you like a lawyer mentality on logical reasoning? You want to have that mentality, like you say, of like looking for the thing that the person said that was wrong or invalid in whatever way. But I always joke that like, you have to read LR the way that your loved ones don't want you to listen to them. Like just listening for the thing that's wrong and trying to break apart the argument. Uh, I see I see the benefit to get better on the test, to bring that into your day-to-day -day life, but I also see how it can be beneficial to separate the two. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, congrats on getting to minus zero on logic games. That's exactly what we want to see. Um, they're perfectible. They just aren't. Mm -hmm. They make perfect sense. Absolutely. They all do, but they all do. But logic games is probably the easiest to get that consistency on. The other thing I wanted to add about plateaus is that they're often frustrating because just because you're stuck in the present and you don't see what's coming. But in hindsight, you look back at a plateau and it's like okay, like a couple of weeks, maybe like a month or so, that you feel like you're stuck in the same place, but you're still building that, like base of understanding of the test, even when the scores aren't improving, maybe you're getting more accurate, maybe you're getting quicker at catching your mistakes, right? There's still stuff that's happening, even if you don't see it immediately reflected in the scores. So if anybody out there, anybody out there is in that boat right now, don't worry, hang tight. You will overcome it. It's not linear. Progress is not linear on the test. Absolutely. And it's, it's just like, if you get frustrated, I mean, just there's nothing wrong with taking breaks either. Like I took multiple study breaks throughout it. Not, I'm not talking like in the session, I would stop and take a break. I mean, like there were a couple times where I took a month off or something like that to just relax. Cause I mean, um, I know Ben has talked about it. Like if, if, if you go to the gym a lot, you know, at some point you're going to stop making improvement and you got to take a, take a break so your muscles can reset. And I mean, this is a huge mental workout 
all the time and uh, stuff just becomes it becomes incomprehensible if you're doing it too much and so taking breaks when especially when you feel like you're burning out and you're but you're so obsessed because you're like this really matters i need to get this done i need to get a good score but like um you know i took a month at a time sometimes during my almost two years of studying to just let myself rest and reset yeah and everybody's timeline's different if you're studying for like four or six months or so. I mean, not that you don't know when you start out how long it's going to take you, but it's one thing to take a month off when you're studying for the test for four months. But when you're in it for the long run, you're like, listen, I'm going to do what it takes to get the score that I want. Then yeah, you might be at it for a while and you definitely are going to need a break. I, I stand by that. Absolutely. And I mean, the thing that, uh, I think the biggest thing that led to me, you know, being able to get that 18 point improvement was that you know, listening to thinking else at the guys say like law school is always going to be there. If you need to take more time to get the score, you can get like take more time. I think when I started studying in at the end of 2020, like I was so naive about what I was going to do. I was like, I'm going to take the test in April. I'm going to get my acceptance by August. I'm going to be in school by September, like that fall. Like had I done that, like, oh my goodness, I can't imagine like the like horrifying situation I could have been in with some like um with a scammer ship or with just some like predatory law school that just like f- you know feeds on the uh tuition dollars of poor uninformed students that don't think like long term about what they're getting themselves into and end up with two three hundred thousand dollars three hundred thousand dollars worth of debt and no job prospects and that was like where I started I wanted to get into school by then uh, this fall and, uh, with a 166, I think I had maybe at the time of earlier in this year, 160, I'm not, I don't remember 166 in June, maybe even then, I mean, that was below the 50th percentile at like my top choice school. And, uh, I think it was above the 25th percentile, but you know what they say, like, if you want to have your best shot at it, you got to be as high as you possibly can. So I pushed it back two years and I, I'm fine with that. You know, you know, there was a lot of life happening in those two years outside of studying and getting into law school. So yeah, it, it, it worked out fine so far. Absolutely. And that's a perfect segue for what's next for you. I actually, a lot of people, I think, especially K to JDs feel that sort of anxiety of this needs to happen on this certain timeline. I need it to happen the way that I always plan it out, the way that makes sense to friends and family but you've got a bit more perspective. You're a non-traditional applicant. Why don't you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so, I mean, I was, let's see, 2020. I was 29, I think, when I started studying for that. Um, I just turned 31 in uh, November, so there was always that kind of thing, like, oh, man, I'm 30, I'm 29, I'm 30. Like, I'm really late in life, you know? I think if I was 22 right out of high school or right out of college, like I, I'd probably still feel the same way potentially like, Oh man, I'm 22. Cause I didn't graduate my undergrad until I was 27 because I was in the military for five years. Like I said, I mean, there's a lot of life that you're still going to experience and live. And it's not like you have, I'm going to graduate law school at 34. That's still time to have a 30 year career at a minimum. Like that's a lot of time. I don't know what the difference is between a 40 year career and a 30 year career, but it doesn't seem that big to me. 
And when you look at the attrition rates of law careers, it kind of puts that into perspective, too. People don't always make it that long. Right. Or, you know, 50 percent of people at JDs don't practice. It doesn't necessarily. I mean, it op- from what I've heard, you know, there's people that like I I worked at a courthouse, too. So, like, I took different avenues to get experience. So um, by going to work at a courthouse, like I spoke to judges about their uh, careers. I spoke to public defenders, to prosecutors, to private attorneys, and just kind of dug into like what it was they were doing. The more time I took, the more opportunities I had to speak with tons of different um, attorneys and people that are in the profession. So, um, you know, quite honestly, taking more time allowed me to get a clearer picture of the opportunities available. And what I came away with is that, you know, the law runs through everything. So if there's like one thing that you're interested in, there's probably a law about it. And if you want to go into that, like there's that opportunity and you just got to kind of find so far, I'm not an attorney, right? Obviously, but uh, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to have too much of a struggle finding the thing that it is that I'm passionate about because being fulfilled by a job is something that I'm really concerned with. Um, I don't want to, some people have said, and I've heard like, you know, I'm in this to make as much money as possible. And I'm like, I'm in this to feel like I'm happy about where I'm at every day and doing something that matters. I'm, I'm kind of going off track. We can cut a lot of that. Um, no, I, I think all that is really valuable. And actually, there's a couple of things that I want to come back to in there. But first of all, do you know what kind of law you want to practice? Do you have any leads? So short answer, constitutional law, I think, is where I want to go. Um, I Like for me, it's constitutional law because I want to eventually be able to protect people's like constitutionally guaranteed rights against the like abuses of people in government. Quite honestly, that's. That for me seems like a a higher calling and something that can do good for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I feel like if I'm passionate about it now to be actually be in the space and practice in that way and do something that I think is meaningful, like that's that's how I feel like I'm going to guarantee that I have a good time in that profession for a while. Yeah. That makes sense. And that's super interesting. The biggest thing that stands out to me is how much thought you've put into this and how just to really like paint the clear picture that I'm seeing to make sure that everybody's seeing it too, is that you're somebody who's really thought about what you want to do. You've talked to people in the field. You didn't just kind of stumble into this because you're like, whoa, like law seems to be the logical next step. Um, you figured out, you tried to get a picture of like what the actual day-to-day like life is like in there. Um, and for example, with the LSAT, like you took this test five times, you're committed to this. This is what you want to do. And to everybody out there listening, like this is, this is the type of person that you got to compete in law school with. It just really paints that image of if you're going to do this, like you got to want it and don't do it just because, right. It's really inspiring to hear you. So purpose-driven in this. It's awesome. So you mentioned that you're a veteran, why don't you tell us a bit about that, about how that impacts your applications, the GI Bill stuff? I know a lot of people are wondering about this. Yeah. So um, having spoken with uh, my I, I work with an organization that I found called Service to School, which is specifically for veterans getting into higher education. Um, but the interesting thing that I've found as a veteran and I'll, I'll get to GI Bill and, and uh, vocational rehab. But uh, the interesting thing I found as, a, as an enlisted veteran is that most of the veterans that I've spoken to that are in law school are officers. 
they've already gone to their undergrad. They spent four years in the military and then they go to law school. So there is like um, kind of a, a diversity thing there. Like I'm not, I'm not a URM and you're not going to check the box as a veteran that you're a URM, but because of being a veteran, I, there is a different way that we are evaluated. And so um, we're not, Having spoken to my advisor with service, service to school, veterans aren't really competing against the average applicant that's out of college. We're competing against other veterans. So we've got a, a smaller pool of competition. Um, and, you know, I've, I know guys that are getting, not know them, but I know of them through my mentor, my uh, advisor, um, you know, that are getting 164 and they're getting into university of michigan which is top 10 right um so there is a different i don't know how to say it um scale i guess or just it's a, a different, different standard a different standard different criteria but everything that i've heard is like being enlisted there are there are so few like minuscule numbers of enlisted veterans that go on to get a professional degree mm-hmm. and that sets you apart and it's actually a point as i found out so far is a point in my favor to be enlisted and to have you know get a 96 percentile lsat score like that already raises me above the guys that are six points below me getting into top 10 schools and everything i've heard says like you're enlisted there's fewer of you it's going to work out a little bit better for you because of the student body diversity with the GI Bill, um, you get 36 months. If you spend 36 months in active duty, you have 36 months. And, you know, if you get an honorable discharge, you get 100% um, availability or 100% eligibility. So for me, I use that at a public institution. GI Bill will cover 100% of tuition at any public institution in the United States and maybe even outside of it. I didn't look that far into it when I used it. Um and I got through school in three years because I had um, 40 credits from studying at a language school in uh, Monterey, California when I was in the military. I was a, I was a Pashto linguist. So um, I used my credits towards my degree and I left with six months left of uh, GI Bill. So there's another program called Vocational Rehabilitation and, education, and Employment or Education. I can't remember, it's, but it's VR&E is how we um, describe it or what we call it, um, which is a supplemental um, employment program for veterans. So uh, you have to have a minimum of 30% disability to be eligible for, uh, and that's a 30% service-connected disability rating from the Veterans Administration, the VA health system. So you have to have one month left of, like a minimum of one month left of GI Bill to be able, even able to apply for this. And then you'll get automatically, I think it's like 12 months of um, additional education benefits as opposed to the GI Bill, which will pay 100% of uh, uh, public tuition or it'll pay up to, if you go to a private institutional state, it'll pay up to the most expensive public institution in that state. So, you know, if I wanted to go to Vanderbilt or whatever, $67,000 a year or something like that. And if I went there with the GI Bill, uh, it would pay for whatever the highest public institution in Tennessee is. 
leaving that remainder left over. Yellow Ribbon, if the school's a yellow ribbon, it could help pay the remainder of that as long as you have GI Bill. If your GI Bill runs out, your Yellow Ribbon goes away too. Like, you only have it as long as your GI Bill is active. So VR&E, on the other hand, will pay 100% of tuition at any institution, public or private, like, full stop. It'll pay for everything. Um, So, I mean, I'm... The whole thing about LSAT or thinking LSAT and the LSAT demons don't pay for law school. And so I'm trying to leverage every everything that I have in my corner to to get through this without having to come out with any debt, hopefully. So um, those are the things that I have available to me. Um, I wouldn't have them available if I hadn't spent five years in the military. So taking kind of a longer path and it's it's meandered a lot, but um you know, I've got a, a full resume that I can apply to these schools with, and I've got a lot of personal experience for writing my personal statement or whatever that I was able to draw on. And um, it it this kind of goes back to like what we were talking about earlier. Just take a little more time. Like it, it doesn't need to happen right now because the more time you take, the more experience you get doing whatever. Take a gap year and do whatever you want. Like all of that's just going to make you a stronger applicant, I think. And uh it's going to set you apart eventually from everybody else that you're competing with. So yeah, nothing is wasted. And thanks for sharing all that information. I'm sure that's going to be very helpful for people who are also veterans or considering that seeing what their options are. Um, so I, be- I believe you said it's the veteran readiness and employment. Um, voca- vocational rehabilitation and education i think or vocational rehabilitation and employment and it's it's different from the gi bill in that it's an employment program specifically and not an education program so like the end goal there is not to get you a degree but to get you a job so it's it's like a a whole thing all the way through until we know you're employed and it's about getting veterans employed okay yeah um yeah it looks like we're talking about the same one i um I think that the name changed or something like that. But if you look up either one, it'll come up. Um, and also, if people want to learn more about service to school, Ben and Nathan actually interviewed them on the Thinking LSAT podcast uh, episode 297. If people are interested to hear more about that. Um, You're right. The name did change. It's now it's veteran readiness. So it was vocational rehabilitation before. You were correct. Yeah. In case people need to look it up or want to learn more about it, um, they can do so. Um, any other words of wisdom that you want to leave people off of people who are trying to do what you did, trying to find the same purpose that you've got? Like what, what would you say to them? I mean, you gotta, you can't just focus on the LSAT. I think you like, obviously the LSAT's huge. It's your, it's going to be the big thing that like makes up for any other weakness in there. It's going to be the most important thing to get you into law school. But I mean, you got to look beyond just getting into law school. Like getting in is just step one of an entire career and you got to know what's down the pipeline for you and where you want to go with that degree. So, I mean, working in the courthouse for me, put me in contact with a lot of attorneys and, you know, um, it, it, like Rachel Gesser is talking about like, you know, build your network right away. Right. Like before you get into law school, like the thing that's going to help you is getting into your uh, building your network and you got to find out what is, down the line for you and start exploring what part of law school or like what part of the law you want to get into. And I think that's incredibly important to think about now, as opposed to if you went to, you know, undergrad and you changed your major three times, like if what happens when you go to law school and you're racking up debt 
for this degree and you think, wow, I hate law. I don't want to do this. I mean, are you going to, not everyone can be a Ben and Nathan and start a really awesome company, I think. <laughs> so it's, it's really important to, to think about like where you're going to go with this degree and what you're going to use it for and how you're going to, for me, it's like I said before, for me, it's about being fulfilled by what I do. Um, so I don't know, start building your network and, uh, start asking anybody and everybody that's in the law for interviews, informational interviews. And it, I'm not comfortable with that, but the more and more I did it, you know, just like reaching out, like, Hey, would you mind talking to me? Everyone's been super happy to talk with me. So no one has said, no way. I'm not going to tell you about my job. Like people want to tell you about it. If, if this is something you're exploring, they're willing to give you advice. They're willing to tell you about what they did. They want to know about you and they're going to help you. Like, so just, just reach out to people. LinkedIn's a heck of a tool. You know, you just got to be very proactive in this whole thing. If you're being passive, I mean, I think you're, you're doing it wrong. And if you're just going to take what comes to you, you're going to, you're probably going to end up getting a bad deal. So you got to be proactive and go after what you want, I guess, and really know what it is that you want. Totally. I'm hearing two big things. Think about the big picture, the long term, and talk to as many people as you can. I think we're good to wrap it up there. Um, thanks so much, Chris. Uh, email daily at lsatdemon.com if you'd like to ask us a question or share some LSAT or law school admissions news. Thanks for listening.